passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. This morning we're continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And if you've been with us for previous studies, you know that David's life at this point is a complete and utter train wreck. His family is a complete mess. We're talking a total hot mess. When your oldest child rapes his sister, and then your next oldest child then murders your brother, I mean, that's called a dysfunctional family, right? You thought your family was dysfunctional. I mean, his takes the cake. Last week, we saw that Absalom, after he murdered his older brother, he lived in self-imposed exile for three years. But last week, it was a chapter that was all about manipulation. Everybody was, seems to be manipulating one another. Joab, who was David's army commander, felt that Absalom really needed to be restored to the kingdom. And so he manipulated David using a, a wise woman. And David, in a moment of weakness, agreed to have Absalom return. But as soon as he thought about that, after Joab went on his way, he realized that's really not what he wanted to do. And so he decided he'd turn around and manipulate Joab, who had just manipulated him. He said, okay, Absalom can return, but he has to stay in a house by himself. And I'm not going to talk to him, and I don't even want to see his face. And Absalom lived apart from his father for two years in Jerusalem. But he got tired of that as well. So he figured, well, everybody's manipulating each other. Maybe I'm just going to manipulate them. And so he called the question on his father. Either I'm guilty of my brother's murder, and I want you to execute me now, or set me free. Make your choice. And David found himself in a hard spot. I mean, how could David put his own son to death? And so David declared him free. You know, when David declared him free, we saw last week, David had not seen Absalom for five years at that point. But when Absalom came into David's presence, it was very cold. It was very sterile. There was no love between a father and son as Absalom or David kissed Absalom to give him the kiss of innocence. No words were spoken between the father and son. No hug took place between a father and son. There was still great animosity between them. And when David set Absalom free, what he did is he sent free an unrepentant sinner, a son who vehemently hated his father, a son who is committed to overthrow his father and to see his father's death. In 2 Samuel 15, where we're at today, Absalom begins to execute his plan to overthrow his father as king, to kill his father, and ultimately to kill the rest of his brothers, because his hope is that he will become the man in power in an undisputed and uncontested way. My friends, anytime you have a son who is committed not just to overthrowing a father, but to murdering his own father, you have a very sick person. That is Absalom. 
it sometimes escapes our understanding. He is a very sick and sinister, depraved individual committed to murdering his own family. This is why the title of the message is called David's Darkest Hour. I mean, what could be worse than your own son committed to your own death? We're going to break this study into three parts. First, we're going to look at politics, Absalom style. Then we're going to look at taking power, Absalom's way. And finally, we're going to look at David when he ran for his life. So if you have your sermon outlines, take them out. We'll start with number one, which is politics, Absalom style. In previous weeks, we've seen that David was completely blown away, totally unsettled by the fact that Absalom killed his older brother. We saw that David was done with him. David wanted nothing to do with him. David had written him off and for the last five years had not really talked to him. And while what's about to unfold in this chapter is completely Absalom's fault, he is the one who's choosing to do this vast amounts of evil, I think we need to recognize that David contributed to this problem. Because when you're a father who writes off your son, who refuses to talk to your son, refuses to say a word to your son, when he, even when he comes into your presence after five years, do you think that really builds your son's love for you? Or does it foster his hate against you? Folks, it just builds hate. It builds animosity when David shut down this relationship, which I think is an important point of application here for every single parent. Folks, you know that your children, as they grow up, sometimes they will do unwise things. Sometimes they will do foolish things. Sometimes they will do downright evil and sinful things. And there'll be that side of your heart where you're just like, I don't even want to talk to you about this. I just want to keep space away from you about this. But folks, don't go there. Shutting down the relationship between a parent and their child is the worst thing that can go on. And all that will do at that point is build hatred and animosity between you, not love and restoration. And this is what we see happens with David as he's built hatred and animosity in his son. Last week, we learned a little bit about Absalom and who he is. We know he is literally the best-looking man in the nation, has the absolute perfect complexion, absolutely chiseled, amazing physique, and let's not forget that long and flowing fluffy hair. Yeah. He's the kind of guy who really likes to major on looks, looking your best. And so everybody gives you your attention. And when it comes to his plan to overthrow his father, it should not surprise us that it's going to be all based on looks, trying to make himself look better than his own dad. So this is the first thing we see. Absalom tried to look important. Verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. It begins with this little phrase, after this. And most of the time we read that, we just blow right through that, but there's significance here. He has just been set free from murder, from which he is completely guilty of. 
that he should be executed for. And his response to his father, after his father absolves him of all the guilt of murder, is to immediately set out on a plan to kill his own dad. No sense of gratitude, no sense of respect for his father and his position. Just completely, like, no sense of that whatsoever. And he gets a chariot and 50 men to run in front of him. Now, I don't think these men who ran in front of him were quiet. I suspect they said something like this. Make way! Make way for the great Absalom! Here he comes! And his chariot, <clears throat> I don't think it was one of those rickety, over 200,000 mile versions. Probably a sort of a fancy Italian sports car kind of chariot. That would be the kind that Absalom would have. Because remember, he majors in looks. He wants to look incredibly impressive. He's all about image. Incidentally, so you know, there's nothing practical about this chariot. If you look at the surroundings of Israel, you know it's a very rocky country. It's a hilly country. It was impossible to use chariots in warfare in that kind of environment. So there's no practical purpose to this chariot other than to drive around town and look really cool in front of all the people and be impressive. I picture him going through town with his long and fluffy hair sort of flying in the breeze in the back, trying to gain the attention of the folks. It's also worth noting that this may have been the first time that a chariot ever went through the streets of Israel. We know from our earlier studies that God's people, Israel, was not allowed to use chariots in warfare. You remember, if you were with us earlier, they were only allowed to be foot soldiers. And they would battle against Philistines, Ammonites, and all these other vast peoples that had large amounts of chariots, large amounts of cavalry, but God would always give them the victory. And God did not want them putting their trust for their future in mighty military equipment. He wanted them putting their trust for the future in him. In fact, you may remember, we read this before, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, because God is the one who kept giving them victory over the chariots and the horses of other people, once again proving that he is the one who determined the outcomes of the wars, not the possessor of mighty military equipment. Well, Absalom is trying to be the center of attention. He's trying to be impressive. And he's trying to focus on looks. Jesus warned us about people like this. Do you remember this from the Gospel of Luke? Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts because they're all about image. Beware of those kind of people. That's not just the scribes. That's Absalom right here. Let's look at the second part of his strategy. Absalom made promises he could never keep. So he's doing his own little personal street parades to draw attention to himself, to make himself look important. Then he does something far more sinister. He actively undermines his father 
and presents himself as the solution to everyone's problems. Begins with this. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. The only thing positive in this verse is actually he got out of bed early. I mean, at least he's an early riser. The problem is what he did once he got out of bed. He went immediately to the city gates. And that doesn't sound to be that significant, but it actually is. Because in the ancient world, when you had a dispute, essentially when you had to go to small claims court, you went to the city gates, and there the elders or the judges decided the matter, and that's where legal matters were carried out. So he goes to the small claims court where the Judge Judy kind of stuff would take place. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, well, what city are you from? The Hebrew word for disputes is very clearly representing to us minor cases. These are not major cases. What's going on? We don't know for sure. Perhaps uh, David as the king, he, he was the judge of the land. Maybe he was trying to take care of all the judicial cases in the nation by himself, which would completely overwhelm him, which meant there'd be a huge backlog in the court systems if he was doing that. Uh, had David appointed lesser judges to be at the, the city gate to take care of small matters? Maybe he had. Maybe he had just not appointed enough judges at the city gates. But if he was a really good son, what Absalom should have done is gone to his father with the problem of not having enough judges, and they could have solved it together. But that's not what Absalom does. This is what he says. And when he said, <clears throat> your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, oh, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. His first response is to say, when he hears anybody with any kind of complaint, oh, your matter is good, your matter is right, you have a just complaint. Which, if you think about this, cannot always be true. Here it doesn't tell us that Absalom took the time to hear the other side of the story, did he? Anyone who had a complaint, he instantly sided with them. And if you come to the city gates and a powerful person like Absalom with an Italian exotic chariot that he rides and the 50 men who come in front of him says, oh, yeah, you've got a really important point there and I think your case is just and right, well, eventually, you're quickly going to think, well, my case is right, and I have somebody important and powerful who agrees with me. But the problem is, there's nobody to hear my case. Absalom is undermining his father. Sorry. Now, folks, doesn't this sound just like modern politics? Nothing new under the sun? Somebody says, well, the one who's in charge, they're just not doing it right. But if I was in charge, things would be different. And that's what Absalom says. Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause would come to me, and I would give him justice. 
If you read that and you think about it for a moment, you're going, you are such an incredible liar. Every person who has a dispute in the nation of Israel would simply come to you and you would give them justice. Well, the problem is that there's too many people to come to David as it is now. What makes you think you're going to be any better to solve that problem? And you said you're going to give everybody justice. They came to you. Well, that doesn't make sense. By nature of a case is one person wins, the other person loses. He could only give 50% of the people the justice they think they deserved. But Absalom... All he wants to do is to look important, to tell people that his dad has got it all wrong, and he wants to present himself as the solution to all of their problems. He's trying to puff himself up in the eyes of the people to think that he is the one who could solve their problems. Then we see this. Absalom was a schmoozer. Now, you probably didn't use the term schmoozer in church too much, but we're going to use it today because that's what he was. He's a schmoozer. In verse 5, And whenever a man came to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. So someone would come up to Absalom, the, the guy with the 50 important men in front of him, and the exotic Italian chariot who's the prince of the land who's agreeing with everyone's case, and they would say, oh, I'm so thankful to see you, Absalom. And he'd pick up his hand and say, no, the privilege is truly mine to see you. You're the one who's really important. And he'd take the hand and he'd kiss their hands. And you can imagine what their hearts did. Oh, Absalom is so wonderful. He's so great. He's the one that we really need in charge. There's a subtlety in the Hebrew that's fun to point out. When it says that he would take their hand, the specific Hebrew construction, the way that's put together, is found only one other place in 2 Samuel. It's found in the spot where Amnon took Tamar by the hand to violate her. Just as Amnon took Tamar by the hand to violate her, Absalom is taking the entire public by the hand with the intent of manipulating and violating them. Amnon violated one person. Absalom doesn't realize that he's a zillion times worse. He's violating the entire nation by manipulating them. Now here's the problem. You and I know this. Politics, Absalom's style, actually works. People, unfortunately, believe it. And in verse 6, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He spent four years undermining his father, presenting himself as the answer to all their problems. As he rode around town in his fancy chariot, as he grabbed hands and kissed them. But while we're busy shaking our heads in disbelief on Absalom and his tactics and ways, I think it's worth asking, sometimes aren't we just like him? Sometimes aren't we really, really just using people and only pretending to genuinely care about people? 
but we're using people to build ourselves up rather than humbly, actually, genuinely caring about others. I'll give you an example. When you find yourself in a conversation with somebody and they start talking about their life, are you actually listening? Do you actually care? Or are you just waiting for a pause in their conversation so you can start talking about yourself? Because you don't really care about them. You just want to use them as an opportunity to talk about you. Or maybe you're an employer. And in your company, you always talk about how we take care of our employees. We treat our employees very well. We value our employees. But then when you look at the amount of time off they're given, the salaries they're given, and the long hours they have to work, is it really a two-faced thing? Are you just claiming you care about people? Or are you actually genuinely caring about people? Is what matters to you the bottom line or the people who are making the business possible? Are we falling into the shoes of Absalom? Well, we've seen politics. Absalom style, the schmoozer who's trying to manipulate people. Now let's look at taking power Absalom's way. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Oh, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. One thing we've learned about Absalom, he's very good at waiting for the right time. Remember, he waited for two years for the right moment to kill his older brother. Now he's waited for four years for the right moment to try and overthrow his father and his kingdom. For your servant bowed a vow while I lived in, at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. So he approaches his father with this request. Dad, when I was in uh, Gesher in exile, I prayed to God, asking that he would bring me back to Jerusalem. And I said, if, God, if you bring me back, then I want to go and offer a worship for you, worship to you. And if you're David, think about this. Absalom is your most godless son out there. All of a sudden, your godless son has an interest in spiritual things. Your godless son wants to go to church. Are you going to fight that? Or are you going to encourage that? David is going to want to do everything he can to encourage this. Son, of course, if you want to go to Hebron to offer a sacrifice to God, I think it's a great idea. But Hebron has a little bit of background to it. Hebron was actually the capital of Israel before David made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. It's a rival capital city. Hebron was where David was anointed king. It's where Absalom wants to go to be anointed king. Absalom, he claims he is interested in worship. He claims he is interested in sacrifice, but it's still the old Absalom trying to appear really good on the outside, but he's lying and manipulating the people on the inside. It's the way he's always been for the last four years, and he treats his father the exact same way, except this time. He's not just lying to his father. He's lying to God. Then the king said, go in peace. 
And he arose and went to Hebron. With David's excitement over his son's sudden spiritual interest, of course, he, he blesses him and sends him on his way. But while David sends him in peace, the reality is Absalom is going to Hebron to declare war. The last words that David will ever speak to his son Absalom are words of love. Go in peace, my son. But the last words that Absalom will ever speak to his father were a complete lie and a deception. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. These are what we call operatives. He sets up what you and I would know from the news as sleeper cells planted throughout all the different tribes. People just waiting to hear the moment when Absalom has been declared king at Hebron that they would stand up in their town and say, this is a good idea. This is a great thing. We're celebrating and hopefully turn the tide of the entire nation in that moment. And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. It says there were 200 men, but I do not think these were just random people. I believe these were 200 important people from the city of Jerusalem. People who worked for David, people who worked closely with David. We know that Absalom has tried this in the past. When he assassinated Amnon, his older brother, remember he brought the other brothers along with them, so the crowd to sort of cloak what his intentions were. Now he's bringing a crowd along with him again to cloak what things are going on. But here's what the options will be. When Absalom is declared king in Hebron, those people can either resist him and be killed in that moment or join him and be forced into the conspiracy. 200 important men from Jerusalem. Also in that moment, they will not be in Jerusalem to help his dad. Fourthly, in that moment, when David sees all of these 200 men who will work closely with him and for him are gone and have joined Absalom, he will assume, even though it's not true, he'll be forced to assume they too were in on the conspiracy. Now, while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. In recent chapters, we know that wise people and crafty people have played a very important role. For instance, it was Jonadab who planned the rape of Tamar, and Jonadab who <laughs> helped plan the murder of Amnon. In the last chapter is the wise woman of Tekoa, who has successfully manipulated David's heart to inviting his estranged son home. Now we're introduced to Ahithophel, Ahithophel is the wisest and the craftiest man of them all. He is the king's private counselor. He's also known as one of David's closest friends. David talked with him about everything. They discussed everything, and David sought his wisdom on everything. He was an extremely intelligent, extremely wise man. 
And in a moment, we're going to see when David finds out, it will completely break his heart that his best friend has joined in this betrayal and sided with Absalom. Later, David will write this in Psalm 41. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is David referring to what Ahithophel did. Incidentally, Jesus quotes uh, this same psalm to describe what Judas did to him. Now, it's been a number of years since we studied the Gospel of John, but if you were here when we did that, you remember as you look at the, the, the meal in the upper room and you look at the seating order that you can tell from the text that Judas was in the place of honor next to Jesus. Judas was the close friend who betrayed Jesus. And this is what Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, speaking of Judas, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You may wonder, what brought David's closest friend to the point of betraying him and joining Absalom's side? Here's some background you may not know. Remember the David and Bathsheba incident? Do you know who Bathsheba's grandfather was? You're right, Dan. It's Ahithophel. When David and Bathsheba had this affair, he was having an affair with his best friend's beloved granddaughter. What do you think that did to Ahithophel's hearts? Uriah? We know that Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Ahithophel's son, Iliam, was also one of David's mighty men. And from what we can tell, Iliam and Uriah were friends. And Eliam gave his daughter, Bathsheba, to his friend Uriah to be his wife. And in comes David. Not only does he take and impregnate Bathsheba, but then he murders Uriah, who's the beloved son-in-law in the family. Now, Ahithophel and David may be close, but I'm going to tell you, Ahithophel has a major bone to pick with David over the destruction he wreaked into his family. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Of course, when they hear that Ahithophel is with Absalom, everybody else wants to join in. Now, David ran for his life. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. We don't know who this messenger is, but his assessment of the situation as he goes through the land, is that everybody is in Absalom's corner. David has lost the heart of the nation, and Absalom has gained the heart of the nation. As you pause to think about this, it just reminds us how fickle people are and how quickly they can change their affections. This is the David who saved Israel from the Philistines with Goliath, this is the David who led Israel from being a weak and minor nation into becoming a superpower in the world at this point. Has he done some things wrong? Definitely. 
But as soon as somebody who's good looking, with long flowing hair, an expensive Italian chariot, and 50 men who kiss and he kisses hands comes along, people instantly switch their allegiance from the David who has been faithful to them to a guy who's never led anything in his entire life. That's Absalom, the schmoozer. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us, quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. If you notice, there's a different David that all of a sudden shows up. Since the incident with David and Bathsheba, you know that David has been very passive, been very indecisive, hasn't done anything, complete pushover. But in this moment, when his son is going for his life, all of a sudden the old David starts to resurface. He starts to shake off the rust a little bit. He starts making quick and decisive actions instead of just sitting there. Number one, we have to get out of the city. I don't know who in this city is part of the conspiracy. I don't know who's not part of this conspiracy. Number two, when Absalom comes through this city, and if I'm inside of this city, he will make sure he kills anyone and everyone to get to me. To spare this city, I have to leave it. I have to run for my life. Now, the world has become very dark. These are what we call David's darkest hours. But I think you've experienced this, and I've experienced this. In our darkest hours, isn't that the time where we get back on our knees? Isn't that the time where we call out to God with desperation that we often haven't, to, haven't had for years? That's what David begins doing in this time. It may not be explicitly in the text, but it's implicitly in the text. Because you start looking at the Psalms, and you find there's a number of Psalms that are written at this time that flow from David's pen as he's running for his life. One of them is Psalm 3. And we're not going to go through all of it. I'll just read the beginning of it because we'll look at more of it later in our studies. Psalm 3, 1 through 2. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for, for him in God. It's all over with for you, buddy. And the text continues. So the king went out and all of his household after him, and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. I'm not going to expand on that one, but if you've been with us in earlier studies, you know that's really significant. Verse 17, the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. So they get to the very last house. David stops there, and he's letting people parade in front of him. So he's seeing who's willing to go in exile with him and who's going to be staying behind in the city, sort of surveying who's there. And interestingly, what we see is the people that are leaving with him are a group of foreigners. And all the servants passed by him, all the Carathites and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. So you're like, Carathites, Pelethites, Termites, who are these guys? The Carathites and the Pelethites 
are David's bodyguard. They are his secret service. In this time in history, it was not uncommon to have your personal protective detail as a king be composed of men who were not from um, your own country because that way they didn't have mixed alliances with other people around you. So his secret service is with him. It's not part of this coup. Also, we find the 600 Gittites are with him. And who are these guys? It says, from Gath. Go all the way back to 1 Samuel 27. Remember when David was on the run? David went for a period of time, joined the Philistines, and fought for the Philistines and with the Philistines. Apparently, these these guys, the Gittites, joined up with him at that time and are still faithful to him. They're willing to go in exile for him and to protect him with their very life. But it's not just the old foreigners who have been around David for a long time that are with him. It's also the new foreigners who are with him. The king said to Atai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I do not know where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Atai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Atai, Go then, pass on. So Atai the Gittite passed on with all of his men and all the little ones who were with him. Atai and his soldiers had just literally come to David and joined up in his ranks. Now, there's a contrast. This is the point. David's own people, most of them, are not leaving with him. The foreigners are leaving with him. David's own son is against him. But the brand new foreigner who just joined up with David is more loyal to him than his own son and than his own people. Do you see the contrast that's taking place? And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by and the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. When David was running from Saul, where did he have to hide? In the wilderness. In the place where there is no water. In the desert. Now he's running from Saul 2.0, his own son, and he's going back to the wilderness to hide in the desert. But there's not just foreigners who left with David. There are also some friends who supported David. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling. Oh, I skipped a verse. Sorry about that. Uh, the point was this. What we saw is that the Ark of God and the Levites came out, and they were next to David, and all the people were parading by David. And at the very end, David says, I'm not going to bring the Ark with me. 
I want the ark to go back into the city. I'm not going to try to use the ark like a lucky rabbit's foot. Remember Hophni and Phinehas tried that one? Didn't work out too well for them. He says, no, I'm, I'm more interested in God's favor than in possessing God's furniture. And he says this. But he says, if I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of this darkest hour, he says, I am just casting my life on the mercy of God. God, you can do what you want with me. Either you'll bring me back and I'll see the ark again and I'll survive, or if this is the end of my life, that's okay too. I cast all my cares and anxiety on you and then leave it in your hands. But here is an interesting contrast. Look what happens in the next verse. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. In the last verse, David says, God, if you want to bring me back, fine. If this is the end, fine. I trust my life into your hands. And he does nothing. In the next verse that we just read, he actively goes about making a plan to try to save his life. He sets up a spy network in the city by using his friends as the priests. Here's something very important. When we are facing dark and difficult times, we cast our anxieties on the Lord and we leave our worries there, but we also go about and make a plan of action. So many times people say, I just, I'm going to leave my anxieties with the Lord and do nothing. But the biblical precedent is leave your anxieties with the Lord, but then go ahead and do something. They go together. Somebody comes down with cancer. All of a sudden, somebody says, well, I've got cancer. I'm just going to cast my anxieties on the Lord. Lord, if you want me to be healed of the cancer, you'll be fine. I mean, I'll make it through. And if this is the end of my life, okay. No, cast your anxieties on the Lord, leave the results in God's hand, then go find a good hospital and doctor. Right? Get a plan. And single people, I want to talk to you. I remember when I was in my 20s. I was one of those guys, I'm in my 20s, I'm in my basement praying, Lord, send that wonderful lady. I don't know why she doesn't knock at my door. I'm in the basement downstairs, by the way. But it was like, it hit me all of a sudden. Okay, cast your anxieties on the Lord, pray about it, and then I need to make a plan. Uh, where's a good singles ministry for Christian singles? And I found the largest one in Chicago. And I went there and decided to start meeting people. So you leave your worries with the Lord, but then you also go and execute a plan. They work together. That's what David does. Back to the story. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. Did you ever be in that time where you're so ashamed of something, you just want to cover your head and never look at anybody? That's David in this moment. So ashamed that he's running for his life from his own son. And it was told David, a heath the fellows among the conspirators with Absalom, 
And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. When it looks like it could not get any worse is when he finds out his closest friend has betrayed him. The wisest person in the land is now siding against him. It can't get worse than that. And what does he do in the depths of despair? He prays. He prays. How instructive is that for us? We're at the end of our wit's end. Pray. While David was coming to the summit where, the Lord, where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him and his coat torn and dirt on his head. Who's Hushai? Hushai is another of David's counselors, similar to Ahithophel. And David all of a sudden realizes maybe God is answering his prayer that he just prayed. David said to him, well, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, Hushai is an older guy. He's not going to do too well in the desert. You want a job? Go in, pretend to be loyal to Absalom, and be a mole, and be a saboteur. Stop Ahithophel. Incidentally, he says, by the way, I've set up a spy network to help you. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. He arrives in the city at just the nick of time. Now, will Absalom leave the city and successfully capture David in the wilderness and kill him and his family? Will Hushai successfully defeat the council of Ahithophel? Will Absalom end up destroying his family or will he die in the process? Come back next week and you'll find out. Or you could actually just pick up your own Bible and read the next chapter. Here's some applications for you. Number one, in a crisis, I must submit to God's will for the outcome and develop a plan of action to address the problem. Isn't that what David did? They go together. Number two, in a crisis, gave us, David gave us four steps to follow. Number one, submit the outcome to God's will. Number two, develop a plan of action. We've already seen those two. But notice, third, he prayed and asked for help in specific ways. And then expect God to answer our God's answer to our prayers to come through ordinary people. Isn't that what God did? An ordinary person just came into David's life at exactly the right time to be the answer to his prayer. And many times that's the way God works for us. Number three, we have to ask ourselves, am I like Absalom? Do I pretend to care about others while actually manipulating them to serve myself? And number four, David's exit from Jerusalem was actually a preview of Jesus' exit thousands of years later. 
you go to John chapter 18. And it's interesting the way John writes that 18th chapter. Talks about Jesus going into the Kidron Valley, just like David. Jesus going to the other side, just like David. And Jesus, or David escaped over the mountain and he saved his life. Jesus did not escape. Jesus lost his life. David will be restored as king, but Jesus also is restored as king, but the greatest king of all, the one who has beaten Satan, sin, and death, and the one for whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess he is Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for this inside look at David's darkest hour. We thank you that he was able to cast his cares and anxieties on you, trusting in your sovereignty. But yet at the same time, he made a plan. Father, that's a great reminder for us to trust, but yet make plans and have action. He prayed and asked for help, but you provided the answer in a very ordinary way through just bringing an ordinary person across his path at the right time. I thank you that the answers to our prayers for help oftentimes are just ordinary people, that you come to help us in our time of need. Thank you, Lord, that uh, while David went through a really dark hour and you were faithful to him, when we go through dark hours in our life, you will be faithful to us as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.